emotion and artistic expression has always been a way that we understand and shape the world around us. Investigative documentary storytelling that is artistic is an absolutely vital component of how we shape the world. Welcome to the Thousand Roads podcast. This time around, I'll be talking about creative, independent, investigative documentary. If that sounds like a lot of adjectives, it's because my guest, Katie Borum, needs all of them to make a point that there's a certain kind of doc filmmaker involved in what she calls a distinct, dual, journalistic and artistic endeavor. What they do is undeniably journalism, but it's also undeniably art, and it can't be understood or evaluated simply by the standards of one or the other. Makes her a perfect person for this podcast, I think. Katie heads up the Center for Media and Social Impact at American University's School of Communication. She's also a producer and the author of several books, including Story Movements, How Documentaries Empower People and Inspire Social Change. In 2022, she authored an article in a scholarly journal detailing her research into creative, independent, investigative documentary. We chat about what she's found, about the techniques and the challenges that make these storytellers unique. We'll, of course, link to her work in the show notes if you want to go deeper. And that's about all you need to know. Katie Borum, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. It's nice to be here. Um, I'll start out with what's what's a documentary? Wow. Okay. You know, it's funny that that is actually uh, stumbles, uh, maybe trips up more than one person who actually writes about documentary and produces them. Uh, a documentary is uh, a creative expression, a cinematic artistic expression of real life events and lives. And you'll note that I include here the creative cinematic expression, because I would argue that that is inseparable uh, to the notion of documentary. I think it would not be quite sufficient for my purposes to say that it is simply an expression, a reflection of lived experience. Without the cinematic and the artistic, I believe we would be more in the realm of sort of classic traditional uh, journalism. Not that, by the way, journalism can't be a, a creative, but that's not one of the core sort of tenets. And how do you define journalism? You know, I, I think in some ways we have occasionally an artificial binary when we talk about journalism versus documentary, but I would love to invoke my friend and colleague, uh, Tabitha Jackson, who ran the Sundance Film Festival and prior to that had worked in documentaries, you know, for two decades at Channel 4 in the UK and many other positions. And I quoted her in my book. So here's what she said. In terms of meaning making that comes from documentary, it's about the passage of time, the time it takes to make the work, the time it takes to watch the work, and the meaning that is made from the events and protagonists the work is expressing. There's a part of me that thinks journalism is there to say what happened, and documentary is there to say what does it mean. I thought that her expression of it was eloquent and seems right to me because, for example, when you take a documentary like Newtown, if I can just use an example, for those who are unfamiliar, the film is about the shooting that happened in Newtown, Connecticut, that you know, took the lives of many first graders and their teachers. And it's not that that film came out six months after it happened or the next day after it happened. Newtown came out at least five years after the tragedy had occurred. And so by the time that documentary came out, 
it was not just there to tell us that something happened, because certainly journalism had already told us that in thousands of stories. But the documentary Newtown goes much deeper into the lasting lasting impact on an entire community and on the first responders, including faith leaders and others. Emotion is a huge component of that. And artistic expression has always been, at least in large part, a way that we understand and shape the world around us. And to the, to the extent that investigative documentary storytelling that is artistic is engaging not just our cognitive intellectual selves, but is engaging our emotional beings is an absolutely vital component of how we shape the world. There are certainly people out there who will hear the term creative investigative and, and stop before you get to the word documentary and say, isn't that an oxymoron? Isn't investigative just only about the facts? And is it creative about your imagination and other kind of modes of storytelling that don't really have to do with facts? Yeah. Well, you know, in the writing that I've done about investigative documentaries that are also cinema, I've been a little bit insistent about including that word creative, because if you ask documentary storytellers who work in an, in an investigative capacity to a person, they will say, my films are art. They are not just telling the factual information. They are, but I am making decisions that are cinematic in music, in how something is edited, in how an interview is rendered. So that uh, approach to cinema does still matter very much to investigative documentary storytellers. So l let's use an example of, I don't think Errol Morris would call himself an investigative documentary story necessar necessarily. Storyteller, yep. Storyteller. But let's use Errol Morris as an example. Um, Errol Morris has a very distinctive artistic mechanism by which he does interviews. Um, that's often used by many other documentary storytellers. So for those who are not familiar, Errol Morris, one of the greatest documentary storytellers of all time, in films like The Fog of War and others, has a, an extreme close-up of an interviewee, and they're usually sitting in a place that is lit in a certain way. It's very moody. It is very cinematic. It is definitely not 60 Minutes. It is not a news piece. It is rendered in artistic fashion. person is often speaking directly to camera as well. Uh, right, right. You know, that's the, the, the kind of thing that I like to point out is that um, in the interviews that I've done with many investigative documentary storytellers, they do bring up the art and their desire for artistic freedom and artistic expression. And they want that to not be lost in the telling of a story. And again, it's not to say that journalism is not creative. Every aspect of journalism is creative. But I use the word cinematic a lot to kind of try to express what I mean in that way. In your research, how have you found the communication between journalism and documentary and, and journalists and documentary filmmakers to be? One of the things that I like to say to students and others is we take it as a given that we all know 
quote unquote, in air quotes that you can't see, what investigative journalism is. And that's true. Now we do. But before it was codified as a series of practices and motives and shared values, it was kind of journalism that was a little extra, right? It was not quite feature reporting, but sure, some aspects of feature reporting. It was not quite beat reporting, but sure, some aspects of beat reporting. But until the first scholars, I believe in the 1970s and 80s, really said, investigative journalism is this. Here are the motives. Here are uh, the motives of the people who practice this work. Here's the values that they share. Here's how they work a little bit differently than beat reporters. It was known with these fuzzy boundaries of like special journalism, right? Or journalism that's doing something a little bit deeper, whatever that means, because journalism should always be deep. But when we think about documentary storytelling, we haven't done a great job of codifying that exact kind of shape and meaning and motives when we think about investigative, creative documentary storytelling. And so, um, you know, I say this with great humility because I'm certainly not the only one who will do this or is thinking about it or has done it. But as part of my work, I've written several times a book chapter in my book and then a new journal article that really does attempt to articulate what do we mean by creative investigative, investigative documentary storytelling in the same way that investigative journalism has also been codified. And so when we talk about, for example, investigative documentary storytellers often working as total independents. Uh, not attached to a newsroom with its attorneys, its legal counsel, its uh, fair use guidance, its you know standards and practices. What we really should be talking about about is how the risks incurred are often quite different, even if the practices may be the same. The risks are profound when we think about issues of data security, surveillance access to legal resources, access to resources like evacuation out of dangerous areas, they don't have that. And that, to me, is where if if we're interested in a series of definitions and semantics around how do they how do they work, how do they work differently, that really should be a road to asking, and therefore, what dangers are unique? in some ways to these storytellers. By the way, not to say dangers and risks, you know, uh, reporters are at risk every single day in this country and around the world, and we already know that. But, you know, to the extent that the sort of lone artistic documentary story storytellers often not included in that series of protections, that to me should be where the where the focus, at least in part, resides. And how would one include documentary filmmakers in that because documentary filmmakers do tend to work alone. Some might belong to this guild or that guild. Some might be working for occasionally this series or that series. But it's not like being on staff at the New York Times when you're out reporting in a tough situation. And I don't know how right. how it ever could be or would be. Well, you know, what happens currently is that a number of, okay, so to even make Let's say you are a documentary filmmaker and you want to make an investigative story about something that's happening in your country. 
we'll, we'll make this broader than the United States. And let's say that part of what you're doing is critiquing your government, a common practice of journalists and documentary storytellers. Often, those films can't even be made if they are not accessing some form of largely philanthropic funding that comes from some body, uh, institutional body, like the Sundance Institute, uh, like Doc Society, like a handful of philanthropic organizations. So what happens currently is those institutional bodies have some level of quote-unquote power, and I'm really using air quotes here because I'm not even sure (laughs) that's real, right? But those are recognized major organizations that have access to the most important philanthropies around the world. And so that is power. You know, there is, whether or not these organizations themselves manage billion-dollar funds, they don't, but they have access to institutional bodies that do. So what happens currently with um, investigative storytellers who find themselves in some kind of danger or risk is if they are affiliated, meaning real, even very loosely, as in maybe they got a grant from one of these organizations, meaning they simply know them, that is often one of the only ways that they end up being protected in some way. What kind of protection does that does that yield? Well, an example, I wouldn't even call this protection, but an example from a couple of years ago was several years ago, there was a film out of India called An Insignificant Man. An Insignificant Man was made by two young filmmakers, I think first or second time filmmakers, who made a film basically about uh, political dissent. And it was about political party that in India that was getting some acclaim. And it was about the people's dissent. Now, that film was seen as politically inconvenient in the country. So there were a number of things that happened. Uh, and uh, they were the censorship board in India was threatening to sh- shut down the film and often is politicized and whatever. And uh, there was a call that came out from the International Documentary Association, which had had some connection to the film that basically said all global documentary storytellers should be really worried about this clampdown of freedom of expression. Very long story short, the film case went to the Supreme Court in India. It became fairly significant. Now, in that case, it's not that the filmmakers, although they should speak on this, uh, I don't know if they felt that they were in physical harm, but certainly it's no small thing to feel that your government is upset with you. (laughs) Um, That is frightening for everyone. And these are first and second time filmmakers. I can't imagine how scary this must have have been for them. Um, but because there was some kind of connection with an international body with some recognition, and the IDA certainly at the time had this kind of convening power that it could pull together, you know, a letter that was signed by huge filmmakers and organizations around the world that said, we really object to this, that that kind of scrutiny was useful in that case. I, there are other examples of that. But so currently, it's this very ad hoc system by which If you're a filmmaker working in this capacity and you know an important institutional body that can kind of come to your public rescue and say this treatment of uh, uh, whatever censorship, threaten a French potential perception of censorship or, you know, any number of issues that fall along the lines of risk and security, um, that's very useful. Now, you should hear a number of things in that in that story. The filmmakers made a, a great movie 
cinematically. They made a movie that was critically acclaimed that was showing up in all the major festivals. So it was, you know, to just use cinematic terms, the film was good. It was entertaining. It was a good movie. What if you are a set of filmmakers making a film in that capacity and you're making a very important film, but maybe you don't have access to the kinds of equipment and financial resources and the craft of filmmaking to gain the attention of Doc Society and IDA and the Sundance Institute and all these really artistic organizations, that this is a grossly insufficient system to support and look out for investigative documentary storytellers working in this way. So to answer or at least start to discuss what do we need? What needs to happen? What needs to happen? So increasingly, it is very difficult to make films that are seen as, quote unquote, politically inconvenient. And I don't mean that with the big capital P necessarily, although I certainly do mean it in that way also. The films that are about human rights that are, um, you know, not films that maybe powerful corporations or government entities want us to know about, right? This has always been a shared goal of, I think, uh, investigative documentary storytellers and journalists, certainly. Um, increasingly, it's difficult for those storytellers to even get the funding to make those films. And then when they manage to get the funding, does it come with any kind of protective resources or not? It really depends on the filmmaker. It depends on the film. It depends on how much money the philanthropy has to give. That is not a complete system. So increasingly, there have been calls for international funds that offer both the financing for these kinds of investigative documentary storytelling uh, projects, but also offer the kinds of newsroom type resources that can really protect those filmmakers. I think that's the right call. Now, it sounds wildly huge, and it is, but a a global fund and entity that looks at media that is designed in the public interest in this way, I think is probably uh, long, long past due. And I think to the extent that we can look around the world and recognize, you know, from reports like the Freedom Index, if you're familiar with that, report that just came out last week that shows that the full range of open democratic expression that comes with freedom of expression is on the decline around the world. The U.S. is uh, really not in a good shape. And going back to our filmmaker colleagues in India, India has fallen on that index dramatically over the last five years or so. And so, you know, sort of climbing out of the weeds here to say, When you look at all of that holistically, the financing, the uh, protections, the access to resources, it's a shared global problem. And it stands to reason that uh, a shared global body, I don't know how one would govern this body, by the way, it's not my problem to solve, but um, it seems like it could be an important step. One wonders, though, how it would be governed. It's not right. my—it's not my problem to solve either. Yes, <laughs> right. Uh, but is it even a realistic thing to think about? Well, I—you know—I I think that uh, the story of storytellers, journalists, and documentary storytellers who have managed to tell impossible stories over decades—that story is paved with people who didn't stop to recognize what was impossible or not. Right.
how does one propose or get to a set of ethics for documentary filmmakers or creative investigative documentary filmmakers, to use your term, if what people are doing is an art, often working alone, not having any resources except themselves and their their close colleagues. And I, I mean, I've never met any artists who want to be controlled by a, an outside set of ethics. Yeah. So one of the things that's interesting for listeners who may or may not have ever delved very deeply into the literature that defines the kind of community of practice of investigative journalism, one of the things that you will come across is when asked, investigative journalists talk about their motivations as beyond just reporting the story, that they are actually motivated by reform. So not just motivated by telling the story, but hope that their story will do something and will change something and are uh, absolutely dedicated to getting the material right so that the conditions are such that that reparation work can happen, right? And I would say I have found that in my interviews with investigative documentary storytellers who work in a cinematic way as well, that they are absolutely dedicated to telling a story first and foremost, but the commitment to accuracy is the ethical framework, right? The commitment to accuracy is the guiding force to allow that the story should do no harm to those impacted by the story, should not place in further danger uh, if we're reporting on things where um, protagonists and others are put in danger. And that commitment to the accuracy of the storytelling is at least in part a major part of the sort of self-policed set of ethical guidelines that you want to be sure that the story is accurate and truthful and a, an appropriate reflection of lived experience so that um, the story does no harm. It comes with the fact-checking. It comes with editing in such a way that you have not, for example, disturbed the linear nature of a, of a turn of events. And because of editing, you've decided to change the turn of events, which is, of course, not ethical. Maybe cinematic, but not ethical. And some people do that, certainly. Right, right. So... I feel like in a way that's not treating ethics as an additional appendage. It comes with the territory. I used to run a PBS series called Expose, which was an investigative reporting series where we paired some of the top investigative reporters in the country with really good documentary filmmakers. Oh, cool. John Shank, Pete Nix, uh, Tom Jennings, who's done a lot of good work for Frontline, were some of the people we work with. And we did documentary stories. We made documentary stories about the investigative journalist's journalism, but um, starring, for lack of a better word, the investigative journalists themselves. Interesting. And it really was a meeting in almost every case, if not every case, of two entirely different cultures. Mm. And it sounds like what you're interested in are filmmakers who are embodying both of those cultures simultaneously. Yes. I wrote a chapter in my book. The lead story is about Laura Poitras making her film uh, uh, Citizen Four about Edward Snowden. And she absolutely, I think in many ways, embodies this kind of professional. Someone who is definitely motivated by 
telling the story, exposing a truth that is hidden, but is also very motivated by how cinematic the story is rendered. And, you know, the other thing that's important to say here, and this is probably where if we had a fun roundtable right this second, Tom, of, uh, of investigative reporters and documentary storytellers, we would have a very fun debate over, you know, whether a storyteller can be a protagonist in their own film. This is where I see some of the greatest departure from, you know, in interviews with investigative storytellers who say, I often am telling the story through my point of view, not because I think that makes it quote unquote subjective, but all truth is subjective. And I am naming the gaze from which the story comes. And that in itself is a truth. So I found that to be very provocative. And I'll, I'll use an example of that. There's a film by Asia Bundawi. She made a film called The Feeling of Being Watched. And this is a great example of what I'm saying here about maybe a, a quite a dramatic difference, perhaps, between investigative documentary storytellers' point of view on quote-unquote objectivity. So she is a, a Muslim-American filmmaker who was, for a couple of years, making a film about her Chicago community that was predominantly Muslim and how that community was being surveilled in ways that were very visible to the community. You know, the community knew, for example, that their phones were tapped and they knew what it meant for people to be parked on their street. They knew what it meant for uh, mysterious cars to come and go in front of a mosque. So they knew they were being surveilled. And she was making a film about the community. And it, it started out as a very straightforward recitation of what happened. Here was the surveillance. Here's what she learned when she uh, did a FOIA request and actually found the records that confirm what they had known for decades. But she said, you know, the film, it wasn't honest until I realized that if I did not name for the viewer that this was my community and my family was part of it, how truthful was that story going to be if I maintained this kind of sort of view from nowhere point of view? And so she said the film finally made sense when I clearly became a protagonist in the film that was also expressing in the film the deep psychological impact of this surveillance on the community and its people. And she felt pretty strongly that there was no way to do that if she had tried to maintain a very straightforward, you know, two sides kind of journalistic model. Now, to be clear, we should not assume or at all conclude that that means her resulting film was not truthful. It's just that her gaze, the lens of the film was explicit to all of us who watched it. We knew it was her story. And she was the, the one telling it. I would say in that case, her film to me became more truthful because she had adopted this quote unquote artistic choice, putting herself in the film. That doesn't make it not truthful. It just makes it a, a truth that is named for us rather than trying to make assumptions about who it is that's making this film and where they come from. How important is documentary film in our information and 
meaning-making ecosystem. Documentary films that are investigative and artistic serve all kinds of roles in uh, a contemporary news and information and film ecology. They tell us new information. They often can reframe and correct histories that have been told incorrectly because perhaps entire communities of people have not had access to tell their own stories. So I think of um, Stanley Nelson's films as what he calls corrective history. It's not that Stanley is, quote-unquote, telling us new information, but unfortunately he is because the stories of Black people have not been told well in this country. He makes stories about the Black experience for anyone who does not know. Such as his Attica prison film. Yes, exactly, and the story of the Black Panthers and the story of HBCUs. His uh, film about Emmett Till actually led the um, FBI to reopen that case because of new evidence that was revealed in the film. So, uh, you know, they do serve in that capacity as investigative journalism. But documentaries are often providing us with points of view from storytellers that often are not accessing still traditional journalistic power. Um and accessing that kind of institutional power. And we should always remember that journalism institutions themselves, they are watchdogs. Yes, that is correct. But they are also institutions of power. And every institution of power requires uh, watchdogs and scrutiny. So the films themselves are incredibly important in also supplying us with, you know, an emotional spectrum and ways to appreciate and either see the lives that have not been represented, or if we are members of communities that have been traditionally marginalized and neglected and dehumanized in uh, journalism and, and entertainment, documentaries that are told by members of those communities often find great representation in that ability to tell the stories directly. Well, and I think that's a great place to stop. Katie Borum, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this episode. Thanks to my colleague and research assistant, Pallavi Deshpande, and composer Ben Cuomo. And thank you for listening to the Thousand Roads podcast. Thank you.